Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in management and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and glad to help you on your journey toward senior leadership in the charitable world. Thanks for listening. If you are a current nonprofit leader or hope to be one, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are truly on the cutting edge of our sector. And I hope you'll do me a favor. Share this episode with one other person on the path so we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. I had a fantastic conversation in this episode with Bob Carter, the founder of the consulting firm that bears his name. And at 75 years young, he brings an energy and tons of advice that we can all benefit from right now. You know, Bob's had four decades of experience in the nonprofit sector and leads one of the top philanthropy firms in the world. But, you know, he's active in multiple ways in the nonprofit community as a board member, a volunteer, and a coach and friend to nonprofit leaders all over the globe. We talked about those key lessons he's learned throughout his journey, uh, how he approaches fundraising and has been so successful there the resources on which he's relied, the value of coaches and mentors along the way, and a multitude of ideas that will reinforce your commitment to lifelong learning. Because Bob is such a good champion of that concept. And also he offers great advice about not being stuck on a particular path to nonprofit leadership. How can you be open and agile to see opportunities ahead? Lots to learn from here, so check out the show notes. This is episode number 95. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find links to the resources Bob and I discuss, as well as more information on Bob and the great work he's doing at Carter and several other leadership positions that he is passionate about. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Join us on any of the primary social media channels and make sure you're on our email list so we can get you free weekly resources, including podcast episodes like this one. We'd be happy to help you and your nonprofit build a strategic plan, re-engage your board, or maybe you'd like to join a cohort of one of our unique mastermind programs. We've got spots available in both our summer and fall program cohorts. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Bob Carter. Bob, thank you for joining me on the path. Thanks for inviting me, Patton. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm excited about this conversation. You have had an illustrious career in all things philanthropy and fundraising and nonprofit leadership. So you're a wonderful person for our listeners to learn from, frankly, uh, everything along your journey. Why don't we start with that? Speaking of your journey, uh, I think you started, as you shared with me in a previous conversation, as a teacher and a coach. So how'd you get into fundraising and all this kind of stuff? Yeah, it's, it's one of those accidental careers, I guess. Uh, all, in, all good intentions I had of, uh, of teaching uh, English, particularly British and American literature, uh, which is what I was doing at, uh, at the school I went to, Boys Latin School. And uh the head of the uh, school came in one day and, uh, you know, asked me, uh, actually told me that the board of directors had met the evening before and 
decided they wanted to start a development alumni office and that he and a couple of them thought that I was the best pick for it. And uh, he said, you, you played uh, national sports, couple championship division one teams and all that stuff. And he said, uh, plus I know you can write. <laughs> so he, uh, I, and my, literally, uh, uh, Patton, I said, does it pay more? And uh, Jack said, I can give you a couple hundred dollars more. <laughs> and I said, I'm your man. And I said, what does it mean? And he said, I don't know. You go find out. So uh, that started me off on a journey of visiting uh, schools around the East Coast and carrying a big legal pad and making notes and, and coming back to my, my school. And I did not have an office at that moment. Uh, I actually, he came to my cubicle, which was kind of a faculty cubicle thing. Wow. And he, he had, uh, when he asked me that question and, uh, I started recruiting parents to start an annual fund and I used his desk and his office when he wasn't in his office to make the phone calls. Cause I didn't have a telephone and, uh, recruited parents for each grade and all that sort of thing. And, my salary was $4,200 a year. <laughs> and I think he bumped me up to 4,500 when I became the, you know, the director of uh, alumni and development. That was and, a big uh, bonus though, right? That was a nice little bonus. Everything's relative. And, Indeed. Uh, yeah. So it was, it was uh, an interesting time and that's, that's the way it actually happened. And you know, one thing led to the next and I went to a conference in New York uh, which was called the American Alumni Council in New York. I was in a uh, I was in a bar, a restaurant, eating dinner, and next to me were four fundraisers at the same meeting, and they were from Johns Hopkins. Wow! And uh, that's where I'd gone to graduate school. We started talking, and within uh, this was in the, my second year of doing the uh, alumni stuff at Boys Latin, and they hired me six months later um, to be a writer and to work in annual giving. I was associate annual giving director. And uh, with that, I, uh, I became a writer uh, for a while for Milton Eisenhower, who was the president of the university. Got to spend time with him and his travels. And that was a great experience uh, working with somebody at that level. He was Dwight Eisenhower's brother and was, had been a speechwriter for Dwight Eisenhower. Wow. Uh, had been an editor of a newspaper and I was writing for him. So it kind of made me hone my skills. Anyhow, long story short, uh, from Hopkins, then uh, we we brought in Ketchum, largest fundraising firm around in the country at the time. And uh, they helped us. And then to fast forward uh, some years later, uh, they had tried to recruit me. Um, and so ultimately that was successful. And I, I joined Ketchum after being exposed to them. And that's how I moved to Pittsburgh and kind of the rest is history. Everything so followed. I spent about 12, yeah, 12 years on the nonprofit side. And the balance of my, uh, gosh, I hate to say this. I started in 68, so it's 50-some <laughs> years of, uh, of being a fundraiser. Uh, the balance of that, the large proportion has been in the consulting business uh, on the for-profit side of the nonprofit. And a lot of that has been as the, you know, uh, CEO or principal officer of a company. Yeah, it's so. it's fantastic. And we're going to unpack lots of lessons. I'm struck, Bob, first of all, as a piece of advice, maybe to our listeners that 
you didn't know exactly what you were getting to at the beginning, but you were quick to identify best practices and you went out and conducted your own research. And I wonder if that's still something any, yeah. you know, anybody could do now and benefit their career. Yeah, I think, you know, thematically, you'll hear me talk about the fact that we have two ears and only one mouth. Right. And so I spent a lot of time uh, sitting at the knee of people all along the way and learning and listening. And, uh, you know, you have your own filters. So you you figure out what the best might be for your situation or whatever might might uh, whatever might be the most productive. But I think learning how to appreciate the advice and counsel of others is one of the great uh, teachings uh, and learnings that I had along the way. And it started back then. Uh, and the people, what I learned about the industry was people were so generous. They, uh, they gave me information. They gave me organizational charts. They gave me, uh, you know, enough to start a, a development office. Absolutely. Uh, from ground zero. And I've always been grateful for that guy named Jim Moffat, who's since departed was at Hill school. And he spent the better part of a whole day, just giving me one Oh one all the way through. And, uh, giving me samples of things. And uh, he was a plan giving executive way back then also. Wow. And he just, he really helped set me off in, in the right directions. So it was That's great. Nice of you to lift up those that help all of us along yeah. our journey, right? And you certainly Absolutely. have had that. And, and of course, now you're doing that for so many others. And well, we back, try. yeah, well, you, you are and have, and I guess I, I'll fast forward real quickly because you and I talked about this strange virtual world we're in now, and you're literally conducting business around the world. But have you seen for all of those nonprofit leaders listening any particular um, advice or uh, tips or tricks that have helped you know good leaders adapt to this environment? Yeah, I think so. And it's <clears throat> excuse me, this environment is is. Uh, it's different, but in some ways no different than other crises we've had as a nation or as a world. You know, we had 9-11, which threw our our, uh, country and many businesses into a tizzy, and we had the Great Recession back in 2008. This is the first pandemic that I've been through, but I've been through six recessions. Um, I've been a leader myself and observed other leaders on how, how to behave during a recession and um, what people look for. And, uh, you know, one of the important things is to realize, and I emphasize this in some of the work that I do with our partners all over the world, that there's a recovery. Uh, you're, you're, I say you're allowed to, for half an hour, wring your hands and worry. And, right. then, and then you go to work and you start preparing for the recovery because it's out there. We don't know when, we don't know exactly what shape it'll take, but it's there. Uh, the interesting thing about this particular case has been that uh, because the financial underpinnings of uh, here in the U.S. were very strong, uh, you know, our recovery is relatively quick. And in fact, we never went down as far as a lot of people predicted we would because the financial institutions were strong. Right. In 2008 and nine, the banks failed, the insurance companies failed and had to be bailed by the government. Uh, our biggest issue here in the U.S. today is, is not the equities market or any of those uh, investment tools but it's employment. And, uh, you know, that's, that's affected a certain part of the market, but our, our major gift giving has remained strong throughout this whole pandemic. And back to leaders and how they react. Leaders are always looking for the silver lining. I think they're not Pollyanna, but they're looking for what can we do with the tools that we have to uh, prepare for the recovery. 
Uh, and the ones, uh, one of the things that I always recommend and recommended here is the uh, over communication. Uh, we, we immediately went to work with our partners for them, these leaders, and we observed the good ones at this, to communicate with their top 10 to 20 uh, donors immediately about what the status was. And also, we always recommend they open up the conversation. Is there anything we can do for you? How are you doing? Right. And, you know, bringing them into the family uh, with that immediate comment. And uh, we have some remarkable stories of great gifts that were made as a result of those conversations um, and the transparency that was part of them. Um, one, one CEO in Baltimore called uh, several of his largest donors and in one conversation and all the conversations, he said, we may have to lay some people off, but we have a plan for it. And this is how it's going to happen. Right. Half an, half an hour later, his largest donor called up and said, you know, here at the foundation, we've been talking about your conversation. Thank you for your transparency. But before you lay anyone else off, call us because we've got your back. Wow. And, uh, you know, had that phone call not been made, that that transaction wouldn't have been made. So uh, things like that. Leaders who are not afraid to address what they're facing and a steady hand at the wheel um, and continually to take the emotional temperature of main, of, of your uh, team. Right. How are how are you doing? And uh, be interested in their personal welfare and their uh, their ability to cope because everybody doesn't cope the same way and good leaders recognize that there are differences here and people cope in different ways. Some people withdraw, some people, uh, you know, have behavior you've never seen before right. and because they're worried and it's a kind of a frightening thing, but we learn and we talk about this a lot. Physical absence does not mean lack of engagement. So, uh, well put, you know, I know from living away from my wife for some years in terms of the travel and the business and all that, it doesn't mean we weren't engaged deeply in love. It doesn't right. mean that. Uh, it just meant we were separated uh, for for work or for uh, other reasons, her work or my work or whatever it might be. Uh, we also, you know, the, the successful leaders have had a little bit of fun with this, I think. And I'm, I'm talking a little bit about, you know, we think we were kind of successful. Steve Higgins, our CEO, and I, and Lenora Ritchie, our top, you know, several people in our organization. But, you know, I brought in a magician. We, we went to weekly. <laughs> I, I did. We went to weekly meetings on Zoom because we needed to be around each other. You know, we used to do monthly and, and sometimes we skipped a month and all that. Uh, but we went to weekly Zoom meetings and we had a good Zoom platform because of our international work to begin with. So we were kind of used to this communication. Right. Um, so a good friend of mine, Paul Gertner, is a nationally known uh, magician. He's been on Penn and Teller's uh, magic uh, TV show a number of times. So I had, and he's worked with me with all my companies. Uh, he's a good friend. And so he did uh, some uh, close magic uh, tricks for us. He had, uh, he, he did his beta testing for Zoom Magic with our company. That's We're in his amazing. Actually. And uh, he had one screen with our staff on it and they got to pick cards and do that. You know, it's just a, a way of breaking up the monotony and having fun that we're isolated the way we are. Um, we had hats, sports hat days. We had, we still are doing, we have outside speakers. And the interesting thing about outside speakers is there were a lot of people sitting home who you normally couldn't get a hold of. Right. Could you give us 40 minutes on a Zoom uh, one Wednesday in the next six months? 
And they said, they said yes. yes, didn't they? Yes, they did. Right. And uh, so that was a benefit of, uh, of this. We had some experts in from various uh, parts of philanthropy, but also we had some some people who aren't in our industry, somebody talking about the uh, changes in the automotive field and the Teslas and those kinds of things who stimulated creative thinking. Um, I love so that, I, Bob. Love it. Yeah. And it, but I'm thinking there's, I mean, half dozen good ideas already. And I think nonprofit leaders need to think about that. How do we lighten yeah. the mood? How lighten do we, the mood, right? And don't take it all too seriously because yes. it's, it's going to get better. I've seen that there's never been a recession or a trauma to this country where we haven't come out of it improved or better in some ways or with better understandings. Yeah, that's well economically and and uh, socially, emotionally, all those kinds of things. We we always get better. Great points, great advice, and I'm just thinking about my notes and already what our listeners are pondering how they can kind of reengage and over-communicate, as you put it, prepare for the recovery. And it, just because we're stuck in Zoom doesn't mean we can't be creative and, you know, lighten the mood. And yeah. of course, Bob, something else you have been such a good advocate for is lifelong learning. And as a fellow uh, English major, I love that you emphasize writing, but I wonder, is that yeah. among the things you would tell somebody listening that, hey, these are some skills and experiences maybe you should be studying? Yeah, I, I think so. I think... <clears throat> And for years, you know, I've been asked about what do you look for in a good fundraiser? And uh, exactly, you know, there there are many characteristics and I'm going to talk about maybe a couple of maybe uh, if I get to it. But I think uh, the ability to articulate ideas, uh, both in writing and, and verbally, I think that's they're, they're Those two things are really kind of important because we end up being idea brokers very often. Um I know in my work when I was at Johns Hopkins, I was the idea broker between some incredible scientists, some incredible scholars, and real people. So I had to take the the uh, what was sometimes very complicated. Uh, it's a little bit like being a technical writer. I had to take the complicated and make it understandable right. to, to normal people. So uh, if you don't have a pretty good grasp of the communication of the words of the language and that sort of thing. Anyhow, uh, it would be very difficult to do that. So I look for that in fundraisers. Frankly, you know, we look for that in, in employees of all kinds. Can they uh, can they articulate themselves? Right. And my, my dad taught me years ago, he said, you know, Bob, you can have the best idea in the world, but if you can't share that effectively with others, nobody ever hears it. So right. that, that kind of stuck. And I guess that's how I ended up, you know, I was actually a, a political science pre-law major with minors in French and English. <laughs> wow. But a lot of communication is it was all, inherent it was in that, right? Communication. And uh, so that's why, uh, you know, back to my, uh, when I went to, to catch him and had a career, when I, I was taking a dinner one night in Pittsburgh and the executive committee of the company, this was a big deal, took me out and told me I was going to be the next CEO. Wow. And uh, they, they, I was thrilled, but I also uh, figure it's time for full confession here. I said, I don't know how to read these balance sheets I've been staring at. And uh, they said, well, we know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they could tell. I wasn't good with math. Uh, right. But they said, you have other skills. We're terribly interested. <laughs> so it was, it was all about ideas and it was all about, um, you know, communicating with the, the, the firm and, 
communicating with our major partners and clients and things like that. So yeah, it's about it's about communication, um, and I think it's uh, a lot about lifelong learning is learning human behavior. Yes, yes. So how you, know, you can do almost anything in business and particularly in fundraising if you understand why it's happening, and that is about why human beings behave the way they do. And, and that's why, you know, some people who are maybe anthropologists are great fundraisers or they're great somethings they're using that, right, all that right. knowledge of how we do and learning why people give. And, uh, and also, I believe in asking people why they give. And, and over, over the years, I've interviewed post-gift a lot of major donors, like my friend Jerry Panis did and kind of made a career of that. Um, but that's where you, that's where so many of your learnings are understanding that, you know, we think everything is rational in the world and it's not sometimes, you know, and giving is about 90% emotional and 10% rational. So true. And uh, understanding the psychology, right, Bob, before Uh, and after, I guess, is what you studied a lot. What's behind it. Yeah. There's a, there's a Jen Chen, uh, who is, uh, uh, a great writer and she was at the uh she was at the school of philanthropy as c-h-e-n with adrian uh, Sargent. is that adrian? yeah that's adrian's yeah, wife right. yeah, yeah i knew her I, I knew her and collaborated with her before she met a married adrian. <laughs> right good anyhow she she's got a real good book out there on the psychology of philanthropy and it's um it's very textbooky, so you have to sort of gird your loins and look at it. But there's there's right. a lot of a lot of good meat in there about this, and I think you know the other the other thing about um, the lifelong learning is understanding how important gifts are to the donor, um, and and getting. I, I did a paper years ago called the nobility of the small gift, and uh, I did it around the fact that I was. As I was a junior executive at Hopkins, I got stuck with some of the worst prospects. They, oh uh, yeah, you know, that's a way. It, there's a pecking order, you know. Right. Every, but I decided to turn my lemon into lemonade, and uh, I wrote a, a brochure, uh, ex, uh, you know, sort of ex, extolling these small donors and how they were really much more important than the big donors. There were a couple raised eyebrows around the university about that, but it. It kind of it won an award and people thought it was really good because I really believe that. And, you know, I believe in the spirituality of giving. Yes. There's something that touches the heart and uh, touches that uh, God implanted part in us that wants us to help others. And uh, I look at the spirituality of it, the nobility of it, and the fact that it's all done uh, on a volunteer basis. Um and I, I, I've reminded fundraisers who worked with me over the years that remember philanthropy is optional. It's not a requirement. And so we, that's why we have to be careful and, and be donor centric, touch the human heart in the right way. Um, and I think that's, um, that's always served me well is, is being donor centric and understanding the emotion. You know, two things that drive it are the emotion and the urgency. Yes, uh, yes it needs to be done why should it be done now and answering and you know this is not a new thought but answering that question so what if i do um how will that move the needle etc that's uh, such a good platform for a fundraiser particularly one learning that they use that yeah. perspective right yeah so you never stop learning because you're in the people business and the people are always instructing you um 
you know, your failures are, are temporary and so are your successes. And uh, I think, they, you know, a lot of people do it well once and it works and they think that's going to happen every time. And um, they get a little depressed when it doesn't work that way all the time. So exactly. Like, exactly. Like, you know, you, you're, it's okay to celebrate. I believe in celebrating, but, but remember, there's going to come another day. So let's keep moving here and, uh, you know, keep advancing on our, on our, uh, not only our careers, but our success for our, uh, our cause, our clients, whatever it might be. I think that's, that's really an important concept. Well put, Bob. And of course, you've been good already at lifting up the value of mentors to your life and career. But I love the phrase you use, the accidental mentor. What do you mean by that? And how did, how could that apply to someone listening? Yeah. Well, accidental mentors are the people we meet. And, uh, you know, I, I get asked this question uh, on, uh, I, I just get asked the question a lot, who were your mentors? And I can name some people, I had some incredible people. The first mentor I actually had was my father. And uh, he was a very successful business person and uh, taught me a lot about um, sales and about being effective. He was a big believer, obviously, as based on what I said before, in communication. Um, but he's also the one who told me, listen to people, listen to other people who are successful. So the accidental mentor concept comes up. And I know I have met people over the years. I know that they have impacted on my thinking and I know I listened and observed them, but I don't know who they were. I can't remember their names. Um, and it's, it's kind of like when, uh, when I was with Ketchum, you, um, they gave the, you want we competed for the, the best salesperson of the year and it was purely based on raw numbers. Right. So the first year I, I won that uh, was like my third year in sales. So I was kind of a rookie, but the, the reward was not financial. <laughs> it was you got to speak to the whole company. And so which was almost the oxymoronic to being, you know, a financial yeah, reward. Yeah, that's not exactly the you reward you're looking for, a right? Speech yes. in front of the whole company. But I remember I remember oh, getting wow. up there and and my point of the speech was that uh, all of them won the award because I had been mentored over those first couple of years uh, by so many people. I had been on, I did shadowing on sales calls. I did shadowing on campaign offices. Nice. And I heard all these amazing words from these very experienced senior fundraisers whose names aren't in the history books because they were just doing their job every day, raising money for people all around the country. And uh, I told them at that point, I said, I've reached that stage where I no longer know what are my words and what are someone else's. And that's why I can't pick out any individuals, but I pick out all of you because you have shaped that tapestry in my head that comes out when I'm meeting with people. And you gave me the courage to do it. And so I, I handed them all the award and I said, this is yours and thank you. Love that message. It's true. It was absolutely true. When I sat down with myself, I said, okay, Bob, you're great. This is wonderful. You know, I did it all alone. And that's, you begin to learn over time that you don't do much alone. And, uh, you know, the people who have helped you along the way that you either remember by name or you can't remember. I had so many mentors, Patton, that uh, they never took me to lunch. Right. They never had that, you know, any kind of a formal monthly thing. But if I ever had a question, they answered it. And they were always generous with their thoughts. 
And that's what I've tried to do. I mean, I, I talk to people every week and, you know, some of my team says we can't get a hold of you because that's my schedule. And all that. so I'm talking to people. Is what yeah, I exactly. Do. And, uh, you know, you try to try to be a resource for good uh, in the business we're in. And it doesn't mean you're writing contracts every day. It means that you're trying to help help those who help others along. And uh, in doing that, you help everyone, I think. Um, I do it. I do it with other companies. I do it. uh, I have friends who have their companies and they'll call me up and, you know, I've been through ups and downs with firms and and that's how you learn. So I, you know, I do some, I'm formally advising two companies uh, by, by uh, arrangement, Uh, but um, I, I do give it away. And uh, Carlton Ketchum, uh, who was a founder of Ketchum. I worked for mainly for his son, David, for years. But I remember talking to him one day before he died in Pittsburgh. And he said, Bob, you need to give away some of this richness that we have, not just financially, but the knowledge. Because if we can't give it away, who will? And so I always sort of took that to heart. That was a meaningful conversation. I can I can see why, and you've been very generous, and it's such a good lesson for our listeners that they all, any individual listening right now, I bet could ponder an accidental mentor, and you yeah. know, let's return the favor, right? That is good for all of us. And I've never given anything away, Pat, and it didn't come back. Right. Never. It always it always rises up somewhere. Well, well put, Bob. You've given, you know, half a dozen reasons why you were very effective as a fundraiser and you're modest about it. But could you point to one thing? Is there one thing that made you an effective fundraiser if you had to pick one? It's probably um, asking. Uh, And I don't mean asking just for the gift. I mean, asking the right questions. Yes. And uh, Jerry Panis and I used to talk about this all the time. We had a, a, a good sort of secret relationship because we were competing. But we <laughs> right. really, you still talked really to each other, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, we did. I miss him terribly. Uh, but uh, that was it. It was asking the right questions and getting them. In doing so, they they divulged everything. Uh, and I can I'll tell you. Can I tell you a little story about that? Absolutely. I was uh, I was working in France, and uh, you know my second language has been French, and so uh, the Sciences uh, 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 Po is the uh, pretty famous university over there where Sarkozy and all those people, any anybody who wanted to be a government official actually went to school there. It was government training, right? Like the Georgetown School of uh, Government Service and all that. Um, but anyhow, their president was over and we were in New York and I, I uh, no, this was in Paris. We were doing a training for his staff. And uh, the, the setup was I was going to solicit the president on how to solicit. <laughs> wow. Volunteered. He said, uh, c'est moi. Oh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And so I said, OK, we'll do this. And, I'll, you know, in English, I, I uh, we sat in front of his whole group, all the fundraisers, about 25 or 30 people, major good people in the room. We were running a campaign for him. That's how this happened. Right. Uh, so anyhow, I started I started asking him questions. And uh, I know he was puzzled because he thought I was going to just ask him for money. So I started asking him about his career. And I said, and how did you land as the president of this incredible institution? So he started talking about his mother. 
and his mother who had encouraged him in so many ways over the years. And clearly his mother was the center center figure in his life. Right. And had, had drawn him out. So uh, were it not for my mother, I would not be here. And uh, perfect examples of, of how she made that happen. So anyhow, we get to a certain point and I said, well, you know, Richard, his name was Richard. Uh, what I'd like to talk to you about today is a way that you and I together can honor your mother. And I said, would you ever consider giving a two million U.S. dollar endowment uh, to honor your mother's name and the impact she's had, not just on you, but on this great institution and will have she will live forever. Right. We can do this. He wept. He wept. Wow. Right. He put his head down and he sort of <laughs> went like this and said, yes, yes, yes. He, you know, he agreed. It's beautiful. But it was it was uh, a confirmation for me that I only um, I let him talk for 20, 25 minutes by asking him some questions about him. Right. About his his uh, what was emotionally attached to him. And then it, it, I mean, he wrote the proposal right there. He just exactly. wrote everything. I didn't have to do any work <laughs> and maybe I like this business because you really don't have to work at it, but yeah, but it, you identified the core, as you said, almost uh, the spirituality, right. Of, of his philanthropy. It was very spiritual. And, you know, he, he thanked me, thanked me, thanked me for what I did. And his staff loved it. I mean, they thought, you know, Oh my gosh, we've learned so much today. They learned about him too, which was yes. kind of interesting things he had never heard that he shared there. Um, so that was, that was really good. So you're observe. You have to be observant uh, to be good at this. I think, ask the right questions, and remember, um, it still works. That if you ask for advice, uh, you you get uh, you might get money. If you ask for money, you might get a lot of advice. <laughs> be so, ready for both, right? Yeah, be ready and and welcome the advice, welcome the counsel. And I, I I've talked with university presidents about how important it is for them to go to some of the key people and say, I need your thinking on this. That's your opener. It's not, you know, I need you to give money. Right. So I need your best thinking because we have these needs over here. Uh, I did that when I was chairman of the board of boys Latin school with a very, very big donor family. And, uh, but they never made the big gift. And uh, so I put this guy in charge of building and grounds on the board. I put him on the board yeah. And uh, he came in with this report one summer day with me and the headmaster. And he's laying out, we really need to do this. We need to do that. It's going to cost millions of dollars. And you know, the first three million ought to go here. The next five ought to go here. And uh, he said, I just don't know how we're going to do this. And I said, uh, Duncan, let's talk about that. How can we do this together? How can we make this happen with our limited prospects? Yes. And that was the opening of a whole conversation. And he did the first five million. That's what I was going to say. You opened the door beautifully. I just, I just laid it out for him and he, he, he walked right through the door and he loved it. He's given much more sense. Yeah. Well, Bob, it's such a good example, several good examples of how philanthropy and fundraising can be uh, so effective if we're thoughtful. Um, let me look at the other end of the spectrum, something in your toolkit and you use a phrase again, I noted, um, all nonprofit problems can be diagnosed by following the governance. So let's talk about that. As a nonprofit leader, if I have problems, you're suggesting that it all starts with governance. What do you mean? 
Patton, the, the other saying is in business, we, we say, um, if there's something going on a little awry, follow the money. Yes. And, uh, but I say follow the governance because you know, that's where we end up so often. Um, and, you know, having chaired a lot of boards and served on boards and been a part of governance uh, and been a, been a part of shaky governance and really good governance too. Uh, ultimately, the governing body is responsible for what goes on. I mean, right, you can't right. more direct than that. And the, uh, the truth of the matter is that we are, uh, we are subject to be afraid of that spot uh, in many ways. You know, people, uh, people kind of avoid going there. And I say, no, you have to go there. And uh, either too much governance, people, you know, maybe the board's too involved. And yeah, that's in right. That. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I tell CEOs when I coach CEOs, don't leave a void because board members fill it. Yes. You can't get them out. Um, or there's not enough governance. They're not involved. They're not engaged as a board. And, you know, you've got an administration run wild or and certainly without the support they actually need from a, from the governing body. Um, or you just have the wrong mix. And you've got a and this is particularly true, I find, in in younger uh, nonprofits, those who are just starting or started, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Right the same board that was a starting board and uh you know starting boards are usually passionate they're usually full of program lovers uh and they don't have the mix to take you to the next level the next iteration of that board to grow the agency or to grow the programs or whatever you're you're growing at that time so that's why i i say you know we follow that and uh you know some ceos are at fault here because they don't want a good board actually interesting do it and they don't like people looking over their shoulders uh etc um but anyhow i think that's that's a good know. point but we need to find a balance right between where we are i guess in the life cycle of our nonprofit, and that our board and governance matches that yeah that's exactly what it is. we believe in in uh you know uh developing a matrix of what what are the assets we currently have on the board then we develop a new matrix that says, what do we really need on the board for the next decade or so? And then we begin to recruit to the new matrix um, for those skills and talents and balances that we all need and balance in every way, you know, to get it where it belongs. So this is a, it's kind of an issue that, that we work with quite a bit. Uh, there's, and, you know, fundraising campaigns in particular put organizations under the microscope. Right. But if there's a weakness in the board, your campaign will bring it out. And so we kind of start there to begin with to test the strength of the board before we, we get out on the streets and discover that we don't have the right uh, the right mix. Leadership. Because if that platform is not strong, Bob, the campaign's not going to succeed, is it? Not going to succeed. We have workarounds. That's why we have campaign committees and councils and things like that, which are good right. feeding grounds for the board because we can't change the board in you know 12 months. But we can uh, we can work with it and to get it on the right trajectory um, to get that. We're working right now with a, a large NGO and we're doing a an integrated and comprehensive service with them, which is doing simultaneously doing the board uh, governance review and strategies along with strategic planning, and they work hand in glove. Um, 
So that's uh, and in me and preparing for a campaign in about 18 months too. Yeah. Those things uh, need to be kind of cleaned up and brushed up and looked at when you're getting ready for big fundraising. Makes total sense. And well, Bob, let me jump back to your journey for a minute. Uh, again, a listener right now thinking about, you know, their next opportunity as a leader, um, perhaps hesitant because I'm, quote, not ready. But I've, you made an interesting point in a previous conversation that maybe sometimes we do need to take the jump, even if we're not you know, totally ready or perhaps even qualified. But wonder if you could speak to that because I guess it's helped you along the way. Yeah, I've, you know, and if we titled this the unplanned career, it would be pretty appropriate. (laughs) Exactly. Bob Carter emphasizes institutional planning in his work, but my career is not so. And uh, I think, you know, the important thing that I I would, would counsel all people to, to do is to be open. And that is to have conversations with, with a lot of people. And you know, I've had people call me up and say, look, I like, I have an idea for you. Uh, and I'd say, yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about that. I didn't jump at everything, but I was open to listen to everything pretty much. Right. Because I never knew. I always learned something when I went, when I got out of those kinds of discussions, they were always healthy in one way or another. So I, I always deeply appreciated what I what I learned along the way, and uh, the other thing is to take a chance. You know, if you if you don't uh, if you don't uh, take a chance once in a while, you'll never know. Right. And it's it's the old uh, the Wayne Gretzky thing about uh, he uh, he knows uh, he knows all the shots he didn't take were misses. Yes. And, uh, yes. Up again. By the way, I use him in my recovery that I was talking about earlier because. His whole career, he says, was based on skating to where he thought the puck would be, not to where it was. So that's why I say you prepare for the recovery, even though you're not in it, because it's coming. So you go to where you think you anticipate it will be and make adjustments as you go. Uh, But I think that willingness to take the shot, and believe me, I took shots along the way. When I took that job at Boys Latin long, long time ago, I didn't know what it meant. I knew it was a little more money and I had a family on the way and that was going to be helpful. But I also figured, well, I'm not really too stupid and maybe I can figure it out. Indeed. And, and I did. And so that gave me the confidence for the next one. And my writing with, you know, Dr. Eisenhower and all that good heavens. I've never been anybody else's writer except my own. Um, but I gave it a chance and it worked out. Um, but but you, there's a tendency sometimes to to uh, think you've got to get another degree, you've got to, um, that you've got to be 100% prepared for the next move. And I say, when the next move shows its face, you need to take it and, uh, and move to it. Move to it, take the momentum with you, learn about it. And the other thing as a leader is surround yourself with people who have uh, those skills that you might be short on. I've always tried to do that. And in Ketchum, I had an executive vice president named Elliot Oshry, who we were opposites. We were polar opposites in many ways. Right. But that was the balance. He was a program directed person, uh, very granular, uh, responsible for all of our services of 200 consultants or whatever it was. And he loved uh, running that part of the, the program, the excellence of service and things. And I was in the marketing and sales area. And uh we had a lot of fun with that because we were different and we were 
different uh, politically. We were different in, in many orientations. Uh, but he, he, we had this amazing respect for each. He's still one of my best friends in the world. He's, and he's working for Carter part-time now. Wow. He won't travel anymore, and I don't blame him for that. But anyhow, we had these amazing conversations of changing each other's minds and, and respecting it. And uh, it was one of those relationships you'll cherish for the rest of your life. We worked together for 27 years and um, through all of the ups and downs of, of the firm and of people. And um, we lost a lot of people to the first AIDS ep- ep- uh, epidemic. Right. And, uh, we were the first company to, to fully sponsor a uh, AIDS task force in Pittsburgh. And, and Elliot was chair of the task force. And he educated our whole company on the realities of AIDS and so on. And I'll never, never uh, stop thanking him for that and brought us into the real world as a firm of understanding how we could help. And, what, and we. Well, I'm struck by, but one, the, that kind of partnership, the value, one, also your self-assurance, I guess, and self-confidence to know one, I can take a job even if I need to learn and I can hire someone to complement those areas that I'm less comfortable. So I guess someone needs to not be um, insecure about their leadership, right? And be willing to hire talent around you. No, and ask for help. Right. That's, you know, I think, you know, some people think that's a weakness. That's one of the biggest strengths that I ever see is someone saying, you know, I need help with this. And I've done that with with my senior staff, uh, you know, invite them into the office and say, look, I need your I need your best thinking on this because I'm not getting there. And uh, there's something that really draws your team very close together when you do that, as opposed to, you know, some directors, presidents, CEOs, they, they, they're expected to have all the answers and <laughs> nobody has all the answers. Bob Carter doesn't have all the answers. Right. You know? And And better to ask for help than make up the wrong answer. So I, uh, that's why in our business, you know, I've, I've made our, this company is formed out of teams. And so we put anywhere from two to five people on every, every engagement. And some are more deeply involved and others are there for just strategic thinking. Um, but, but, you know, several heads have proven to me to be better than one over the years. Uh, and I think that's, it's, it's not an insult to your ego if you ask for help. It strengthens you in the eyes of many that you're willing to ask for help. Yeah, so well put. And again, I hope our listeners will take that to heart, as I'm sure they will. Um, Bob, you're, I'm struck by your journey, both professionally and personally, how you balanced it uh, in a remarkable way, frankly, that you, it seems to me you get paid to do work you love. And you've blended your personal philanthropy with successful business. But any thoughts on that or advice around how we find a balance like you appear to have found? Well, I think it's a, the balance is important. The balance is the key to so many things, which is why, you know, sort of the country distresses me because, you know, most of us in this country live in the balance. We live in the center. We, you know, we, we all love the same things. We like the same things. We want the right. same things for our children and grandchildren and all that. And then we have these... 12 to 15 percent on the ends that seem to get all the all the attention <laughs> right uh, but a balanced life is a good life and i think you'll see that philosophically all through the ages and that's been uh so you have to have a life and you know uh there's there's you know a part of me that 
developed. I've been in recovery for a long time. I'll just put that out there. Right. And, uh, you know, as an alcoholic. And, and that's been one of the greatest things that ever happened to me uh, many, many years ago is to understand how to live in a way that had balance and didn't trigger things and take me to a place where I thought I had to have a coping mechanism that was unhealthy and, and so on. So, you know, at the company, people used to say, well, Bob, you, I've never seen you get upset. Uh, you never slammed a door. <laughs> right. There's no point to it because this isn't my life. This is what I do to have a life. And, uh, you know, I put it in perspective, your work, your work is, is, uh, is a part of your life. And I've been love, I've been so fortunate to work in this business because it's drawn me in as a volunteer to so many organizations, you know, the national aquarium, moat marine laboratories here, environmental things that are very close to my heart. Uh, the schools I went to, I've chaired the, you know, the boys Latin school and, um, and other things. I've, in fact, the rehab where I was, I chaired that board and, right. On. So I've, I've, I've had that good fortune to engage as a volunteer and engage. In fact, the funny thing I may have mentioned to you earlier is that sometimes I'm sitting in a boardroom and sitting around the table and I'm thinking, um, am I a volunteer today? <laughs> or am I supposed to speak really well here? So, exactly. I'm getting paid yeah. for this one, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paid here. And, and I figure that's a good thing. There's a little video on the web, on my LinkedIn site about that, how I started the company and how spending my time here on earth is really important to have that balance between a work life and a volunteer life and a family life. And uh, I think if you, if you are intentional about that, you're going to have a, a good career and a good life. Somebody told me a long time ago, one of my accidental mentors, if you're good to life, life is good to you. And nice. so... I try to, I, I do, I fail. Absolutely. No, my wife will tell you I fail. Um, it's imperfect. Um, but you know, I'm always in the journey of trying to do that. Um, so I think that, um, love life, it loves you back. That's actually the same. Right. So the other thing I would tell, and that life balances, I had a habit years ago of when somebody called and wanted a meeting, I ran to my calendar to see if I could do it. I have a discipline now of not looking at my calendar until we talk about why I'm going. Interesting. That has eliminated a lot of sort of a clutter in my meeting schedules. Um, now, my assistant would tell you I'm still too cluttered <laughs> right. um, because I talk to people that we're not going to write contracts with. And I do that all the time. Sure. But that's who I am. And that's what I enjoy doing and being a resource to others. But eliminating a f some of that was really that was a lesson that uh, one of my mentors at Ketchum years ago taught me. He said, don't grab your I see you grabbing your calendar every time you're on the phone. Don't do that. Talk about the meeting. Talk about why you're there. And if you really have to be there, then you schedule it. Yeah. And as I went up kind of up the ladder, that became more and more important. And I would sit with my scheduler and, and we talk about, you know, the priorities of meetings. I had to go, should go or might go if I could. Right. And kind of categorize types of meetings. It's good like productivity that. advice, frankly, we talk about on this show. That's good. And uh, well, Bob, I'm struck by a couple of things. One, your video is great. And we're going to link to it in our show notes because I do think you speak to balance in ways that would be helpful for someone listening right now. They need to check it out. Um, and thank you for lifting that up, you know, in general. Um, of course, I want to give you a chance. I, I'm looking at a dozen good ideas and points of advice you've offered in our last, uh, you know, 45 minutes or so of this conversation. Anything else? 
as you think about a nonprofit leader or aspiring nonprofit leader listening to our conversation and advice to them you might offer? Uh, there are a number of things I could I could go on about that, but let, you have to have fun in it. And, yeah, you know, yeah. it's interesting. I've come to the top of a couple of organizations, started one and, and risen to the top of others and chair, chairing boards as a leadership position, certainly. But you have to have fun with it. And you you don't want to look around and say, oh, this stinks. Um, there's always going to be, uh, you know, some response with responsibility. Uh, you have to do things. And um, I think you need to be prepared for that. But I've always said this, that um, and I've acted out on this as best I could. Good leaders live for certain moments um, and, and difficult times like pandemic is one of the times. So if you're a good leader, you sort of rub your hands and say, aha, you know, we're going to lead through this. This right. is a fun time for a leader to lead. And uh, it's in, I played a lot of sports. I played on some national championship teams, Division A lacrosse and all that. But champions know when the moments are to win. There's a certain moment in a game where you close the deal. Right. And, and I've looked for that in business when, okay, this is a moment to win here. Uh, whether it was related to a social movement, the organization and company growing, or a particular hire you needed to make, or a particular dismissal that had to be done. Um, particularly in the dismissal, some people don't have much of an appetite for that. I don't relish it, but I know it's an important part of growth. Yep. It's not fair to keep people who are being uh, sort of carried by a dozen others. Right. So looking for those moments as a leader and, and kind of relishing that and enjoying the leadership role uh, makes you a stronger leader and makes people respect your leadership. And then you respect your own leadership through doing that. And you know why you're sitting at the table at the end of the table, I say. Right. Um, you know, so. The other thing about good leaders is they test their team. They don't wait for a crisis. So they give their team responsibilities when things are okay to test them out. You know, some leaders hold on to stuff because that's their power. The power is giving it away. Power is letting people lead and then coaching and mentoring and uh, bringing them to another level of leadership. So they're better prepared either to take your job or take another one. The greatest compliment I've had was when, one of our vice presidents went on to run another company. And uh, I always thought that was great. Yes. You know, some people say, oh, my gosh, they're taking all our secrets. Well, you know, we don't have any real secrets anyhow. Yeah, the, exactly. se the secret sauce is human behavior. Yes. Um, but I always liked it. I thought, well, that's a great compliment. Good heavens. What could it's be better than, you know, that kind of a, a move on somebody's part? I always helped them leave. Well, it's a tribute to you and your organization. And frankly, it makes your organization more attractive for someone else to come work, right? Because Absolutely. you show that. Yep. You know, there's it's a, two things are really important about, about being involved with a company, how you come in and how you go out. Yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, some people fail miserably on the last end of that. Which is <laughs> right. right. And I've told people they've come in and said they have an opportunity. And I've said, is this, is this the one where you want to cash in your chit here? Right. And th just think it over. And if, if it is, if you determine that for your family, this is the time, because this may be the last shit ever here. It may not be, but maybe the last right, shit ever. Right. Let's, let's talk about cashing it in for the right thing. And and I'll help you with that. I'll help you either way, because, you know, you don't want people working for your company who don't want to be there. Yeah, so, so true. And 
Yeah. Well, Bob, I'm grateful for the gifts of, of your wisdom Thank and you. advice. Um, if I could ask for one more parting gift, and I bet you could list dozens of ideas, but might there be one or two books you might recommend that have been meaningful to you on your journey? I could do that. Yeah. And, it, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not giving you any new book ideas, although I have one that I hope comes out this year. So uh, well, we'll, 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 we'll feature that, that at some point, and right? I'm, I'm meeting my promise to Jerry Panis because he always beat me up about not writing books and right. so all that. Here you go. But anyhow, I go back to, there's a Cy Seymour book called uh, Designs for Fundraising and it's written many years ago, but it talks about human behavior. And I picked that up when I joined Ketchum and I've used it ever since. Um, it's a great, it's a Love great, how-to, it's a great description of human behavior. And the other one, since I've talked about Jerry would be uh, his one called asking. And uh, I, I got the blue lines of a lot of Jerry's books and made, you know, we talked about his books before. That's yeah, a classic. Yeah. That's a classic book. And I use that because asking the right questions and asking for things and getting the dialogue going is one of the most important parts of successful fundraising. And that doesn't get old because it's human behavior. Once again, fantastic. So two, two recommendations. No, it's fantastic. And do keep us posted on your book because we would love to add it to the PMA library and uh, certainly share it as you have been so gracious and sharing things. Uh, Bob, where can people go to find out more about you and the, the great work you're doing through Carter Global? The uh, we know our website is www.carter.global. It's very simple to get to. It's an easy website. Bios are all long and short bios are on there. Um, and then uh, of course we can. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, among other things, and LinkedIn is pretty thorough. Uh, and if they really want to learn about me, give me a call. So I. You're nice to offer. I answer my phones and uh, I have help in scheduling, but I do try to answer my phones or get back to people. So thank you, Bob. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me on the path. Thank you, man. See ya. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Bob as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide you on your professional journey and keep you open to new opportunities along the way. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Bob, the great work he's doing at Carter, and links to some books and other resources he mentioned. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and other of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.